Dallas out of it. That's very good. Caption made magic express. What's up? It's a prison where it's um
Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki. Uh, me, Olaf Phillips, broadcasting live from KADP LP FM 103.5 FM, broadcasting from Sonora. I'm here every Thursday from 10 p.m. on uh, to midnight, and uh, we talk about weird stuff. So, a uh, couple. First of all, uh, we had to take a little break last week. Uh, I appreciate your patience. Uh, had some things I had to take care of, but we're back, and we'll be broadcasting every Thursday from 10 p.m. to midnight. Uh, a couple pieces of information. Uh, number one, I want to remind everybody that the Sierra Bigfoot uh, Music Festival 2023 is happening August 25th, 26th, 27th. Um, I'm working on being there August 27th over at the KAADP. Sorry, KAADLP. That's a tongue twister. Uh, <laughs> KAAD. I'm gonna get it right. Um, over at the booth, uh, so I'll be there. So you can come and hang out, talk Bigfoot and uh, general weird stuff. And uh, that's going to, again, happen on August 25th, 26th, 27th, up in Twain Hart. So make sure you check that out. Uh, also, uh, this weekend is the Backyard Luau and Campout uh, over in Copperopolis. Uh, check that out at Creative Copperopolis. I'll be there. Uh, you can hunt me down. Um, unfortunately, my Bigfoot Tiki shirt has not arrived yet. So you'll have to find me some other way, but I'm sure we'll bump into each other if you want to come say hi. And uh, don't forget, uh, you can reach us via email at info at theenigmahour.com. So tonight, uh, this I this is my second training episode. I am running the board tonight. We're not it's ready to Captain take... Captain Tiki at the wheel. Yes, Captain Tiki at the wheel. Uh, but I'm still learning the board, so please excuse me if the <laughs> levels go up and down. Uh, but I've got Dave Allen here, uh, local Tuolumne historian extraordinaire of the strange and the bizarre. Um, and I was talking to Dave about it. I think testing you're... one two testing. Oh yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Okay. So I was talking to him about it, and we kind of were talking about the Sonora Aero Club. And I thought we could do a little bit about the Sonora Air Club and some more general weirdness of uh, Tuolumne County. You know, if you have uh, problems uh, doing uh, KAAD, that's how you say oh, it. Oh, KAAD. Well, no, that's not how I say it. But if you want to be like Steve Weldon with uh, Gold Country Classics on Monday and Tuesday morning, right? you say it like a Brandon Iron. KAAD. KAAD. That's right. LP. <laughs> I think I did the station ID enough times, right? <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that, that Sonora is actually very well known for in the 14 world. Now, one of the things that you kind of have to get into is what is 14, right? You'll hear me say 14, 14, 14. It's so, a golf term. <laughs> right. Is that like a double eagle? <laughs> Whatever that is. I was never good at golf. You know, when I was in high school, I knew guys who played golf for the, our high school golf team. The high school golf team? The high school golf team. Yeah. Their high school careers in the high school golf team. Anyway, um, so you hear me say that term 14, and where that comes from is a guy named Charles Fort. And in the, in the early 1900s, he wrote a book called The Book of the Damned. And basically, Fort had documented just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidences of weirdness. Frogs falling from the sky, f fish typhoons, just 
all kinds of just really strange stuff. And so that brought about this term Fortean, the followers of Charles Fort. And what Fortean really is, is it's kind of a catch-all term for anything weird. So let's say you like Bigfoot. Well, Bigfoot's a cryptid and cryptozoology, but that falls under 14. If you like ghosts, that's 14. UFOs or quote-unquote UAPs, that's 14. It, it really is a kind of catch-all for all kinds of weirdness. Um, and if you've ever heard of a guy named John Keel, he wrote The Mothman Prophecies, amongst other things, Jadu, and he, it's Disneyland of the Gods. He he was a big time professor of, of Fort, the, this notion of Fortianness. So if you hear me say that word Fortian, now you understand what I'm talking about. See, I'm a follower of Schnellism. What is Schnellism? Well, uh, you heard of the Cabinet of Curiosities? Oh, yes. So early 19th century scientists, 18th, 19th century okay. scientists, are doctors usually they were. Yes, and medical would, doctors actually. Uh, they would uh, create a cabinet of curiosities, things, oddities. Oddities, yes. And uh, that's eventually one of these cabinet curiosities became like the first museums. Okay. And Dr. Perez Schnell was our resident medical doctor in the 1850s. And he had this uh, cabinet of curiosities. Okay. Which included remains of ancient civilizations under Table Mountain. Oh, right. Included uh, skulls that were at least three times bigger than normal size. And these are all the things the miners would uh, um, bring to him. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, they were going to make it the basis of, of the Tuolumne County Museum. Okay. But what ended up happening is this house burned down and all the relics... Uh, went with it, but we we are firm believers in uh, the tenets of not mindingness. Okay. Now tell me about the tenet of non not mindingness. <laughs> well, it's just uh, it uh, brings peace of mind. <laughs> okay. So the Sonora Aero Club. Uh, yeah. We're famous worldwide. Worldwide. But. Nobody really knows about it here in Sonora. It's odd because when you walk down the street, I mean, you see plenty of Bigfoot stuff, but you never see anything about the Sonora Aero Club. So we're talking about the books of Deschau. Deschau. Affectionately uh, uh, known in, during the gold rush as Charlie. <laughs> Charles. Augustus. Yeah, uh, something. Yeah, Deschau. Yeah, yeah, two A's. Uh, yeah, I love the names in the old days. Oh, yes. They were very long. So uh, maybe we should set the scene. Okay. Uh, so you got to, there's this like this context everything happens in to help you understand things. So we're going to talk about the discovery of the books of Deschau. And uh, at that time, this was the 1960s, and the Air Force was sick of... Uh, having to deal with UFOs. They wanted to shut down Project Blue Book. So they purposely hired this guy, uh, Edward Condon. Dr. Edward Condon. And he was from the University of Colorado. Right. And, um, he, and bitter, bitter rival to, uh, to Hynek. Well, yeah, Hynek, see, the Hynek. Air Force thought, hey, he's our guy right. because he was a good debunker. He was. But, uh, but 
what ended up happening is he became a believer. <laughs> yes. So uh, they, they said, didn't like that. No, they wanted to get rid of him. So they actually did the Condon report to shut down um, the Air Force investigations on UFOs. Yeah, Project Blue Book. Uh, and they succeeded. It was in 1969 that that report came out and it was officially shut down. Right. So almost on cue, a art history student from the University of Texas went into Fred Washington's trading post and furniture repair <laughs> uh, shop. And she was actually looking for things specific because she wanted to put on an art exhibit and it was going to be, I think the, the title was Flights of Fans, Flights of Imagination. Flights of, yeah, Flights of Imagination. Uh, exhibit. Yep. So she was specifically looking for anything to do with like flight, airplanes. Uh, she had already had big blow-ups of Da Vinci uh, right. sketches of wings and stuff, you know, his kind of stuff. And uh, old Fred, the uh, junk dealer, says, well, I might have something for you. So he car uh, she's with her girlfriend, you know. Okay. And he goes to this big pile of rugs, and he draws back these rugs to reveal these ancient-looking, hand-bound, stitched-together, yep. um, huge notebooks. And uh, she picks one up and opens it up, and it has all these bizarre Dr. Seuss airships. Around the world in 80 days, uh, Jules Verne-looking, yeah. Uh, stuff and she gets excited. Well, she's just an art history student. She bargained with old Fred. Fred liked his, her looks, and uh, <laughs> she she got a book. Uh, I think there were 15 books that was there, and she bought one. And then uh, she goes to put together this uh, exhibit. One of the big oil tycoon families was the Menils. Okay. And Dominique Manil, you know, rich heiress kind of lady, Texas lady, she's a patron of the arts. Right. And she gets wind of this exhibit, and she's like, wow. You know, she's a lover of uh, that outsider kind of art. Sure. So she went back to Fred, and uh, she bought four books. And he kind of upped the price. Well, I think they went to 50 bucks at that point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think she bought four for 1500 Oh, yeah. And that was a That's lot right. of money. But, I mean, this lady comes in, you know, the, she's got somebody opening the door for her. Right. She's know? got the big car. Right. Yeah. So he knew. That it's like Dallas. Um, and then another person who saw that exhibit was Peter Navarro. Right. Now, not the Peter Navarro that's been in the news so much. This is a graphic artist in mm -hmm. Texas. And he saw this book, and I guess he was already kind of a UFO nut. Right. Uh, so uh, he got he went over there to Fred, and I don't know what he said to him, but he ended up with all the rest of the books. Okay, so he does this like, it seems like a lifetime study of these books. And uh, two of them, the earliest books, were written uh, in a combination of English, German, and code. Right. And it was named Recollections. There was one that was a strictly German version, 
And then he did one that was kind of an English version. But the English version, so he had um, little sketches on the sides of the writing. And it tells you yeah. stories. And these stories of, is about, well, come on, chip in here now. Well, you're, what you're, were these stories? Okay, so <laughs> supposedly during the gold rush, there was a group of mostly German immigrants. They lived in a boarding house that right. was downtown Sonora here. Um, and Charlie happens upon the scene, and he's German too, you know. So, hey, man, we're meeting on Friday nights. Come on down. You know, we, uh, so, you know, you know, on one hand, you say it was like the clampers. Uh, they'd all get together at the saloon. Right. They'd drink and have a good time, but everybody was required to take turns. The reason why everyone got together was to try to devise air transportation, right. airships. That was the reason why they got which, together. Which they called arrows. Arrows. Right. Yeah, and so so they would get together and eventually they started to build them. And the leader of the Sonora Aero Club, I forget, his name escapes me. Peter Menace. Peter Menace, that's right. Uh, was the one that uh, developed the, what they called the lift, yes, the lifting fluid. Yes, the lift, the uh, magical lifting fluid. So in 1857, along Woods Creek, Peter Menace let known to everyone. And the pictures that Charles Deshaw draws of Peter Menace, he's the typical minor dude. He's got the slouch hat, a yep. pipe in his mouth, the red shirt, the uh, tall boots, and he's usually depicted with a little dog. I guess he had a little companion, little dog. So he drank too much, you know, back in those days, the gold rush people, uh, but everybody knew he was a brilliant man. He was kind mm -hmm. of an inventor. So just using what he could find, he puts together this airship, this weird looking contraption, and lets everybody know, come, I'm going to fly. Who wants to go with me? Right. So everybody along Woods Creek uh, showed up, but they said no one would get in to take a ride with him. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, they'd say, uh, you, you're going to lose your life. You're, uh, this ain't gonna, it'll never fly, Orville. And, <laughs> and they're taunting him, right. you know, and stuff. And he calmly gets into this thing, starts it up, he flies to Columbia and back, and Charles Deschamps, in his description of this flight, says he landed as light as a bird, just a few feet from when he took off. And over time, the Sonora Aero Club grew, and they built more and more of these arrows, and they started to fly them all over Northern California. Uh, yeah, there's one uh, story, and what. These, these are like stories, they're personalities, they're people, and uh, airships that of our designs of these different individuals. They're doing yeah, they, these experiments. Each know. each arrow has a name. Yeah. Oh yeah, the right. Peter Menace was the arrow goosey. Right. Uh, the, goose. the goose. And uh, that was the first one that actually flew. That was the maiden voyage. They finally got it up in the air. And then they started experimenting with other designs. Right. Uh, the cool thing about it is that, yeah, one of the, uh, so they'd come up with this landing gear. The landings were rough. Right. So they came up with this brilliant idea, land, re, landing gear, 
Well, yeah, well, but the landing ground. Uh, but what happened is uh, they took an arrow out to uh, Calaveras Big Trees. Right. And it caught on the on top, top of, of the tree. trees. Yeah, it killed the guy, didn't it? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so then they said, well, that didn't work. So then they came up with retractable landing gear. Landing gear. So what I'm trying to say is that these things that uh, were so far advanced in technology. In 1852, over in Paris, that Andre guy. Right, he builds a uh, hot air balloon. Um, but it was, the thing that was magical about it is that it was powered, so it was maneuverable, it was steerable. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, they were using uh, uh, hot air balloons. That mm -hmm. te that's kind of, was kind of the common limit. technology. Yeah. Right. But to get one that was actually, you were able to navigate. Now, the Henry one over in Paris in 1852, it hit a strong headwind and then just stayed motionless. <laughs> you know, it's like, couldn't beat. So, so what I'm talking about is these things here, supposedly Snow Aero Club, they became quite sophisticated. Yes, and they, they were even capable of carrying cargo. Uh, yeah, there was one guy that wanted to go into business. Yes, and the Snow Aero Club. Yeah, this was a like secret. That. So, all right, now here's where we get strange. Yeah. Um, By the it, way, before you met, we should mention that the arrows themselves, the, the art, if you find Delshaw's art, it's very weird. It's like a collage art. And the arrows, they're, they don't look like airships that you would imagine. They really do look like something out of Jules Verne. Yeah, they're very bizarre. They're, and they're very colorful and art, artsy. It's like an art car dirigible. It's yeah, you just have to kind of see it. And it and what's amazing about it is he has these detailed diagrams of like things like retractable landing oh, gear, yeah. jet propulsion packs. Yep. I mean jet uh, engines. Yeah. Uh, these things uh, got it down. Well and and it should be mentioned that in at least one of them, there is an indication that if you're I don't you know, if you're familiar with the bell to Glocka there is one that depicts the bell in operation as the power source for one of the arrows. Yeah, see, uh, supposedly Peter Menace came up with this mass reduction <laughs> right. device. Um, and you had to have the certain kind of lifting fluid and be put into a rotating barrel. C counter rotating barrel. Uh, and it would create some kind of electromagnetic. But, but my point is, and he has diagrams of describing everything. all of this stuff, and then you sit there amazed. It's like, wait a minute, is this true or is this not true? Is this just something? So a little bit about Charles Deschamps. He kind of had a tragic life. He was a butcher. Right. As a matter of fact, when he was here in the motherload during the gold rush, which is kind of, it's not disputed. He was, no. he was here during the gold rush. Uh, he settled in Texas. Well, he was a butcher. That's what he did. In fact, a lot of his drawings are on butcher paper. Uh, that's what makes those watercolors so, because butcher paper is kind of resistive to watercolor, right. isn't it? So it yeah. adds this really cool quality to it. It does. It's kind of ghostly. So his wife dies, his son dies, okay? And all he has is when he married his wife, his wife already had kids. And so he's staying with his wife's uh, daughter, um, husband, uh, 
that he's living up in the attic this is when he retires. And this is when he starts writing what he calls his recollections. Right. So it was during a period of his life that seemed like the most important period in his life. And he wanted to chronicle it. He didn't show it to anybody. No. In fact, I heard a story where the way that they originally found the art was that it was actually in a dumpster. Well, that he had died. He had died. Right. And uh, there was a fire in the house. And the fire inspector came by and said, no, no, you got to clear this stuff out. So the person that was like the housekeeper, right? nothing was of importance to her. She wasn't in any way related to this old cranky, grumpy man that right. lived all alone up in this attic, right? And so they just threw it all on the curb. <clears throat> and then another a junk dealer came around and said, hey, what are you doing with all this stuff? Hey, Take it. Take it. And then he's the one that sold it to Fred, who in turn sold, sold it. it. All right. Oh, so anyway, this took place in 1970. And uh, when uh, they put on that art exhibit and stuff, Pete right. Navarro spends, he came out here in 1973 uh, because he was trying to trace down some of these names. Right, because one of the things that Del Shao had done is he listed the crews for each one of the arrows. Yeah, there were like 60 members of the yeah. Snorrow Club at its height. And and there's a there's actually, we'll get to it later, there's actually a competing group called NIMSA, which competed competed with the Sonora Arrow Club. So, uh, yeah, what, what happened, yeah, that's, see, now we're getting into it. So Peter Navarro, this thing's written in German, English, and in code, in code yeah. there's this weird code that uh, uh, that you got to try to figure out. So this guy Pete Navarro spends literally years trying to transcribe and understand these books. He eventually sold them off. Mm. You know, one page of a Deschamps book now goes for thousands of dollars. I think it went for like twenty grand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, somebody had bought one of the books and actually cut the pages out. You know, they that yeah. that's they all are that way. You yeah. can't find the whole book. You, uh, they've all been distributed. It's all in art galleries throughout the yeah. world. There's some at the uh, National Aerospace Museum. Really? They have uh, some to shower. Really? And uh, uh, yeah, because whether you think this is true or not, it was during the dawn of age where everybody right. kind of realized that uh, air uh, trans. As early as 1848, there was this guy named Rufus Porter, and he was the guy who founded Scientific American Magazine. Really? And he successfully built a uh, navigatable dirigible and, um, and tried to raise money for a transport. He had plans for airports, aeroports all oh, across sure. uh, America. It was the main form of transportation. When he was selling subscriptions to his idea, he guaranteed uh, from New York to the gold fields in, I think, seven days. Okay. And then, uh, you know, previously it takes months, right? right? No matter which way you would go. Sure. And so he got a good subscription. So although his model worked, mm -hmm. when he tried to build the big one, forget. <laughs> he had one problem after another uh, trying to put this together. So what I'm talking about is that's like 1848, 49, 50. So this whole thing about these group of guys 
building uh, airships and flying them in the mother load is really not that far-fetched. And especially if you look into um, his stories that he tells about life during the mother load. He knows the name of the sheriff. He knows the name of the boarding house lady. And all that can be confirmed. He talks about the stores. He talks about these little towns uh, that don't even exist anymore around the mother load. Uh, mentions Knight's Ferry, Angel's Camp. Um, supposedly that they had their, um, uh, you know, they wanted to keep this a secret. Right. And then, you know, we're going to get into the secrets in a minute. I know we are. Oh, you uh, have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in fact, yeah. I'm trying to look one up right now. All right. Um, but they had their uh, airfield where the Columbia Airport pretty much is um, now. And yeah, they I had believe- the sheds uh, the, for the... And, and they even disguised one of the airships broke down. There's one story. Is one of the airships broke down. So they folded it up and uh, made it look like a gypsy wagon to haul it back to uh, their hangar. Yeah, so my understanding was that the airfield was actually where the grass airfield is in Columbia, the Columbia Airport. That they yeah. launch it from the grassy area. And then where they stored them was where the campground is um, over there. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what they say. Yeah, there should be some kind of plaque there. I think there should be a plaque over in Woods Creek where Peter Menace uh, launched the first airship. But see, the problem that we have is the only source material that we have for all this is Delshaw. Well, okay, yes, yes, I know. During the researches of Peter Navarro, he started finding connections. Well, not not just that. There's also the story of the mysterious airships of 1897 where... I was getting to that, yeah. I'll let you get to that then. No, you can uh, get to that. Well, that supposedly they got some of the the Sonora Aero Club crews, they went out for some kind of a long-range flight to test how far they could push it. Yes, so there were these competing companies uh, that were all building airships. And what they wanted to do is the feasibility of intercontinental travel. So it was like a great air race, okay? The first sighting, this was considered the first flat, the first air uh, UFO UFO wave in American recorded history. I know you can go way back and do isolate, but this was a wave. And they went through 18 states. And they started in this region here. Um, Now, the first recorded instance of the airships flying over a region was in Sacramento. Uh, That was the San Francisco call reported that November 28, 1897. And then by December 11th is when it first appeared in the Union Democrat. Let's see how many years have already went by since the Shao in um, 1857 to uh, um, the great airship mystery. And uh, the connection that seems to be one of the common ones. See, at that time, most people 
didn't believe it was Martians. And plenty of Martian stories came out. There's no doubt about it. Venusians, I've read, I read a lot of the articles. But most people uh, considered it uh, exactly uh, what uh, just some uh, inventors experimenting with, um, with their inventions. By, by that time, everybody had experience even before they built Sonora High School, the 1880s, they were flying hot air balloons all around Sonora. Well, one of the one of the the things about the mysterious <clears throat> mysterious airships of 1897 is that there was a documented case where one of them landed in Aurora, Texas, where there's later a UFO crash, many many years later, but it landed in Aurora. The crew got out of the the arrow, and they were actually like hanging out with the local townspeople. And they were like, well, where are you from? Are you from Mars? And they're like, no, we're from Sonora. Well, what, uh, the connection that was made is one of the guy was a Captain Wilson. Uh, and he said he got the technology from his grandfather, who was the grandson. And in the Sonora Aero Club, there is one of the members. Uh, they call him Tosh Wilson. Okay. And uh, uh, Tosh is like a nickname. Everybody had nicknames. It was like right. a joke. Like Opasha, that's kind of what you know. Like you're pulling my leg or something. Sure. That's what that nickname means. Oh, Tosh. okay. Tosh. But uh, there was also a, a Mr. Wilson that uh, that was experimenting. I have a, 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 a scan of an old newspaper, and it was a Mr. Wilson. He lived in San Francisco, and he was building an airship. See, I, th I think it was during the presidency of Grant. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the idea of air transportation was so popular sure. that uh, uh, they introduced a bill into Congress saying that we'll, the first ones to come up with a viable system will pay them $50,000. And back in those days, man, that's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. The problem is, is the bill didn't pass. But people were already, uh, you know, making plans to build their airship. Because when they interviewed the Mr. Wilson that was building an airship, he said that uh, he was after that fifty thousand dollars. By the by the way, I need to mention you're on the Enigma Hour <clears throat> with Captain Tiki on K double double A D L P one hundred three point five FM Sonora. <laughs> Sorry, I have to do that. It's annoying, but I have to do it. You know, one of the, <clears throat> you were talking about the guy, Wilson, in San Francisco. Interestingly enough, there was a guy named Tolliver who built an airship, who was in the process of building an airship in Pleasanton, out in, or in Livermore. And he was actually funded by the Hearsts. And the Sonora Aero Club found out about it, and they went down there and torched it. But it was actually financed by the Hearst family. Yeah, see... And there, was, there is an, there is a plaque for that one from the the Clampers put a plaque for that one. This is where it gets uh, into the why it's a mystery, right? Uh, these who are financing these exp uh, experimental aircraft, right? And uh, in the course of the Sonera Aero Club, there's a group called NIMSA. NIMSA. And uh, what, according to the show, this is the way the story goes is they had developed these airships to such a degree that their funding source uh, became really interested. 
And so supposedly these people are funding more than just this one group. Right. Uh, but they want to keep everything hush-hush because they don't want any competition going on. They want to dominate the field. So. Right. And they send over, they just call him the Prussian. So he's some kind of military officer, but right. he's a representative of their mm -hmm. backers, the finance group. Right. And he's interested in making warships. Okay, right. so uh, uh, instead of the Ariel Goosey, it's now called the War Goose. Okay, and Peter Menace, uh, you know, everybody hated this guy, the Prussian. And right. these are a group of like these. They're very shadowy. Uh, like Nims is like right. super shadowy. Yeah, even what, what does that acronym mean? There's a lot of speculation. There is. So, so the commonly held belief is that it's like the New York Motor, v Motor Zeppelin Association. But according to, um, <clears throat> according to, uh, somebody else, somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> according to somebody else, it's the, German. For it's, it's actually a German. Right. Yeah. There's, it's a German designation and that it, it maps back to, uh, Walter Bosley. He has a translation for the German and he, pr he traced it back to the Prussians and then it gets really strange. But I'll, we'll continue with, with the Sonora Aero Club, and we can branch out to the Prussian connection in it. Yeah, see, later. I'm still talking about uh, <laughs> reality. <laughs> it gets, that's why it gets into the UFO stuff. It does. It does, um, actually. Uh, this stuff, whether you believe they even flew an airship, Deschamps a famous artist. He is. And, um, Accidentally famous. Yeah, and his entire body of work which is thousands of uh, drawings and watercolors, oh, yeah. uh, um, is all about Sonora. It is. Uh, that's all it's, it's about. It's all it's about Sonora. And um, so anyway, this guy, the Prussian comes in. They want to start designing war machines. Right. Uh, they said, uh, Peter Menace says, no way. This is for the betterment of man mankind, you know, right. the noble stuff. And uh, he's just this, uh, he's, Charles Deschamps really makes him out like this romantic hero. He does. Um, this renaissance man. And, and this massive leader. Like he's galvanizing this, this whole group of this people. Whole group of he people. is the leader. Yeah, he the is the default leader. leader. Yeah. Um, uh, and he, he protected whatever this material was, the, the lifting agent, he did protect it. Yeah, he had the recipe. Had, no one else did. Nobody else did. And you got just enough to do whatever you needed to do, and that's all you got. So uh, what ends up happening, and it seems obvious, Charles Dessau doesn't paint it out, but uh, you know what happened uh, between the lines, is he's actually tortured to try to give up the lifting fluid. Right. Uh, because he says, no way am I going to start making war machines. Right. And they said, well, give us the recipe. So no way. Well, I mean, he didn't even want to do the commercial stuff. Like, no. No, that's right. Yeah. He, he wanted to keep it strictly experimental and about the science. Yeah, actually, you're right. It was, yeah. it was like strictly for science for him. It was. I was thinking it was the reason why they're keeping secrets because their financial backers didn't want the other companies that, are, that were considering doing this kind of... Uh, experiments in flight transportation mm -hmm. uh for peter menace it was just like pure science yeah because right? that's that's the story of why they torched the tolliver airship is because he 
Tolliver had gone to the hearse and said, look, I have, I have gotten this technology from the Sonora Aero Club. I'm building an arrow. And he was very plain. He said, I am building an arrow. And he started to build it. And he, he did it strictly for commercial purposes. And I think that's why the hearse were, you know, they were, they were a lot of things, but they were very forward thinking. And that's why they torched it. And there's also that case where the, uh, there was one of the arrow crews, they were running cargo and Man- Menace found out about it. And so they, they sabotaged the arrow and it right, crashed right, into right. The, the redwood trees. And unfortunately, the pilot apparently fell out and he died. But they, they sabotaged it to stop him. They wanted to keep it completely out of commercial and everything. But so when Peter Menace died, the secret, mm-hmm. or supposedly the secret, did they get it out of him or not, you know? So he died under mysterious circumstances, just suddenly. Right. And uh, that was it for the Snare Aero Club. Yeah, it evaporated. Uh, they evaporated. So uh, did somebody carry away that secret? Um, you know, the, you're talking about the Nazi belt. So you're getting out of Tuolumne County oh, yeah, this time. So I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> lost on uh, those wonder uh, weapons. Wonder that, weapons. Uh, but but that's that's NIMSA. NIMSA uh, eventually took the basis of the technology, which was the bell, and then th- they supposedly exported it back and weaponized it. And it's interesting because the group, the guy who was specifically tasked for that on the, the Nazi side, that he was actually ethnically Prussian. Everybody who had anything to do with the Wunderwaffe and the Wonder Weapons, they're all Prussians. And it was originally uh, started by Goring, and people don't know, but Goring was actually the Reich's protector of Prussia. So the entire Wonder Weapon group, grouping of people, you know, it was all, yeah, they're all Prussians. And they, I forget the guys, a Kamler, Hans Kamler, there was a, when the war ended, see, Kamler died four times, the guy who dealt with the bell. And he was Prussian. Kamler died four times, so meaning he never really died. But one, when they rounded up the Nazis and they did the denazification and the Nuremberg trials and all that, they were particularly interested in Kamler because Kamler ran the entire secret weapons program. And eventually he had escalated to the point where he ran the entire weapons program. And one of the people that, that they interviewed about Hans Kamler said that although, you know, he was very ardent in his beliefs, as whacked out as they were, they always, well, multiple people actually said that they always felt that he was beholden to someone else. And the theory is, is that even in the 40s, Kamler, who weaponized the bell out of the Sonora Aero Club originally, Kamler was still beholden to Nimza, even in the 40s. See, that's that's as far as I'll go with it, but that's... That's it, where it ended up. So, but take this group of uh, kind of eccentric, uh, but see, that was the times. You have to yeah. do this in context because at that time, there were grand experiments in flight, or let's say grand dreams. Well, I would say grand dreams and experiments. Um, I mean, and in and what's curious about it, uh, yeah, Charles de Chau not only did 
retractable landing gear. He also Jet did uh, mass reduction devices and stuff, anti-gravity technologies right. are some crazy diagrams. It's curious that the U.S. Army put out a patent for uh, uh, Deschamps' uh, <laughs> diagram. Did they really? Yes. That I did not know. Uh, That's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah, there's a, a experimental craft supposedly called the Manta. Oh, right, the uh, Manta. And I actually have footage of, uh, of somebody shot of it over the airbase doing a little test run. Really? And uh, it was. So, did I tell the story about. Uh, see, I'm hopping all over the place. Because unless you know the context right. of, of something that happens, it uh, brings it into more perspective for me. Of what course. was the gasalts? You know, what was going on around at that time? Absolutely. To make it a, a total picture. So, Charles Deschamps and the Sonora Aero Club is not that far fetched. No. Um, not at all. And uh, this, they were sightings of the vehicles in San Francisco. In Sacramento, you know, down toward Bakersfield, even down to L.A. I mean, Monterey, Santa Cruz, they saw these aircraft all the way even up into the north. You know, so these these aircraft were like, flying. When they interviewed people during the – now, this is like how many years later, though, from the Sonora Aero Club to the uh, Phantom Airship uh, wave. It was in 1897 right. uh, that that happened. Right, and uh, uh, first uh, documented in, in was in the San Francisco call. Right, and that was in November twenty eighth, I think, eighteen ninety seven, and it was then went over Sacramento. And you have to understand, this is not just witnessed by a couple people. No. This is everybody in Sacramento, okay? Yeah. And then eventually went over San Francisco, uh, and everybody in San Francisco saw it. Uh, the first. It appeared in the Union Democrat, December 11th, 1897. And then by the next month, it appeared in the Calaveras Enterprise. And they didn't even have to say in the headline, they just said, they're here too. That's all they had to say. Because by that knew. time, everybody knew. Right. Ended up crossing 18 states. and Ended up uh, over in Illinois right. uh, is where they and they. Basically, what's kind of strange is they, or maybe not strange, is they followed the railroad lines cross country. That makes sense, though. Uh, but if a group of competitors were in an air race to prove right. uh, that intercontinental or continental travel right. uh, was possible, uh, they would follow the rail lines. Well, Although the you could also say is all the rail lines had telegraph operators. Hey, Joe, we've seen him here. That's true. Get ready for the next city. That's true. Uh, but there were but hundreds, thousands. By the time it went through 18 states, it was thousands. Thousands of reports. Uh, but here, it started here. It all started. And that's what really boggles my mind. That, you know, when you go to, when you're outside of Sonora and you say Sonora Aero Club, people know. I mean, that that book, there's a book that has all of Deschamps' 
So oh. it has a series of, it's like a coffee table book. And this yeah. mother's heavy. It's heavy. It's like a tomb. It's like, what, two inches thick? Uh, and it's and it's big. It's huge. You ever see the pirate's law that Johnny <laughs> Depp throws out, yes. you know, to Keith Richards? That's, I mean, this is what we're talking about. And in the beginning of the book, there's a collection of essays. And most of them treat Charles Deschamps as a visionary or outsider artist. Right. And then they do get into most of his arrow ships are all these intersecting spheres. Right. And then uh, one of the chapters is on the um, surrealistic uh, uh, mandala kind of uh, and the trip. collage. There's and an then there's one chapter that. that does go into Peter Navarro. Right. And uh, all the translations and stuff he made of the texts. Yeah, and he searched, he searched and searched to try to find the crews. Yeah, he did. But the problem with that is, is during the gold rush, literally thousands of people came through the gold rush. The Shao himself was only here for four years. You know, so uh, are they figure he was uh, by following census. Uh, or that's the years that he accounted that he was here, the years he chronicled. So thousands of people are coming through the gold rush era. The only people that you can have any document, uh, documentation for are the ones that really settled here, like the sheriff. Right. Are the boarding house, lady down the boarding house. Business owners. Business owners and government people. But all the thousands of miners coming through. Uh, well, they're all, it's hear, all transient. Yeah, and especially since they're trying to keep the scenario club a secret. Yeah, uh, that's uh, something else too. But it's like I said, it's it's always shocking to me that, you know, when you talk about the Sonora Air Club, this is a very, very, very famous thing. But in Sonora, nobody talks about it. No. Uh, well, uh, actually, you want to know the truth is kind of like a hipster thing. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so am I a hipster well, now because yeah, I talk no, yeah, about it? Yeah, you're uh, you're <laughs> part of the in crowd. Oh. Yeah, the, the shower is kind of like a secret thing that we pass amongst the uh, hipsters, the people in the know. In the know. Right. Hipa means to see. That's where the word hip comes from. I gotcha. And uh, so, yeah, if you see. And the UFO sightings here, did you know uh -huh. that Sonora is not the city of Sonora is number five. Number five. Nationwide. Really? And the frequency of UFO sightings. We're uh, the only person that's above us, man, is Sedona. That's crazy. <laughs> well, let's, it's all, we're, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. So let's, let's talk about some UFO sightings when we come back. All right. So you're listening to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki. You've got Dave Allen on. We're talking about uh, the Sonora Aero Club and weirdness in, in Tuolumne County. Uh, we're on KAADLP 103.5 FM, and I'm going to go ahead and play some music, and we're going to take a little break.
I'm new. I uh, I knocked over the uh, <clears throat> I knocked over the mic. <laughs> All right, well they, they can't actually see that. No, I know, but I'm. And I think the mic works better for it. But I, that's I'm, called percussive maintenance. <laughs> percussive maintenance. Well, you know, I had to I had to do something wrong, <laughs> so I had to reattach the mic. <laughs> so before we were so rudely interrupted. Yes. Uh, we were talking about Sonora. Uh, being number five in the nation of the frequency of UFO activity and sightings. And so we already covered the 1850s, the 1890s, and I think we were last talking actually about the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s. So here's the uh, picture. It's 1964. I'm going to up the music a little bit, give you some theme. Okay, the year is 1964. Walter uh, Jake Jacobson. Okay. Everybody calls him Jake. And he maintains those radio towers that's up the hill here. All right. You can actually see him. You're at Save Mart. You look up, you yeah. see the uh, radio towers. That was his job. Okay. So about twice a week, he'd go out there and do some maintenance on these things, okay? So uh, there's a housing track up there. He lived in one of the houses there. But then it turned into the dirt road to get up to where the antennas were. And he always kept a uh, chain uh, locked up because sometimes kids would get out there in their pickup trucks. It was potentially a popular spot to drink your beer or bring your girlfriend or something. Okay. So uh, he uh, gets out and unlocks it and uh, goes up in there. And he's inside the shed. Uh, There's a shed down there, maintenance shed. And uh, he sees these headlights, like these headlights are lights, you know, and he's thinking them damn kids uh, coming in here with their pickup truck and he's gonna go chase them off. But when he goes outside, sitting there, as clear as could be, were three saucers. Three. 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 Okay, so this is the day the saucers landed in snow. Actually, it was the night because it was getting dark by sure. that time. All right? And he says when he lo- walked out there and saw that, and there were actually people on the disc, on the outside, like on the rim of the disc. Okay. There were, there were figures there. And he okay. said he looked at them, and they looked at him, uh-huh. and they just, like, made eye contact, right? Okay. Okay, now this is his description of the beings in these spacecrafts. He said, if you're walking down the street, you wouldn't even notice these guys. Really? But they're just, they were just guys. Now, they all did seem to be about the same height and weight. That's interesting. Um, uh, And they were all dressed in the same, it wasn't a military outfit. It was kind of like some kind of overalls with a ball cap. With a ball cap. Yeah. From space. Yeah, no, he, 
He. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, they're 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 standing on top of a flying saucer. Right. Wearing overalls and a in a baseball cap. Right. Okay. 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 And he freaks out. I think most people would. Okay. <clears throat> and so he uh, gets in his truck, and this he's a big guy. Right. I mean, uh, he's like, you know, big He's a big dude. dude. Big dude. Okay. And uh, this scares him so much that he gets in the pickup truck and takes off, and he goes to his neighbor's house down there and just starts pounding on the door. Okay. Okay, pounding on the door. And uh, they let him in, and he tells them the story. Now, I have this collaborated from a couple other sources besides. I have a recording of Jake telling this story. And, uh, but the kid that was living in the house of Jake's friend that was pounding, that was his dad. Uh-huh. And he was just a little kid, like, I don't know, 10 years old or something. <clears throat> but he heard the whole story. And then years later, when he was in high school, he was driving his date home on, off of Bluebell. Okay. And uh, uh, he had his own encounter. And I'm talking about just hovering. He st- had to stop his car because it was in the road. Oh, wow. Okay. But I'm still talking about Jake, 1964. Right. So the next day, a reporter from the Modesto B. And uh, Jake, the sheriffs, I guess, officers and stuff, all went up there, and they found burnt-out impressions. And a substance hanging from the bushes. Okay, so what, so the substance, so what, a, what was the substance like? Uh, he described it, but I, if you want to know the truth, I'm, I'm, I, I don't quite remember. He, he did describe it, though, in detail. Because there's, there's something they call it like angels, angel floss. And it's just like uh, thready material. Yes, the, yes that's yeah. what he described. Okay. Kind of some kind of webby, thready. Webby, thready material. Yeah. And, and it, for whatever reason, it either drops from the, the vehicle or it appears around the vehicle. But it, trees, you know, plants, buildings, cars, they're covered with this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So that's 1964. 1967 was the incident I alluded to already, hmm. um, was that Universal Studios was filming a Western. Yes. It starred James Francisco or something. It wasn't James Francisco. Franciscus? Uh, but anyway, it was called hmm. A Man Called Gannon. Okay. All right. And this is one of the uh, cases that uh, the Congdon Report covered that they said there was, they couldn't find an explanation. Okay. For this thing. So there's multiple cameras. You know, the Universal Studios, they just don't have one camera car. And they have right. like several. Five. <laughs> I don't know on this particular shoot how many, but you know there's going to be at least two. Right. All right. So uh, for period pieces like that, they actually hire a guy to look for airplanes. Did you know that? No. <laughs> yeah. They I, know, I know when, I, I think it was Ben-Hur. When you're watching the the sequence where they're going around the Circus Maximus, there's a plane that actually flies over. Okay, now here, yeah. now check this story out. Okay, so they actually have an uh, air spotter. Okay. Okay, and he saw nothing whatsoever. Really? Okay? But when they developed the film, uh, they developed it's 35 millimeter film, and uh, they developed the film. They noticed a what looked like a uh, a metallic disc flying across the scene 
And for uh, proportion, it flew behind James Franciscus. Okay. Uh, and uh, so it wasn't anything in front of him. Right. Something behind him. And at one point when they're doing the clapper, uh-huh. that's how, this is what I have a photograph of, is uh, so you could see the scale or get an idea of how far away it was. You know, sure. Because the clapper's there. Uh, and you can see the object in the air. So it was, uh, they developed that and it goes, well, you know, it's just, that's just a flaw in the film. But every, they developed a film on every single camera yeah, at different angles right. and all had the same thing on it. Wow. Okay. And then so Edward Cogden, of course, goes down to Universal Studios to the processing <laughs> lab. You know, and, uh, but he came away after he talked to those engineers and the mm-hmm. people that worked on there. Uh, the thing that sold him was the guy goes, if we were going to stage something like that, we could do a lot better job. <laughs> <laughs> so they, uh, the people down at the studio were generally puzzled. The problem was is that they ended up not having enough footage for that one scene. Right. Uh, so if you watch A Man Called Gannon, Uh, released in 67, 68, something like that. Uh, In one scene where uh, the the hero of the story is on the horse, Uh and there's kind of a close-up, he's on the saddle, and you can see this disc uh, flying across the uh, field of image. Uh, It disappears behind him, then comes out the other side, goes across the screen. So now when you told me that story, I thought it sounded familiar to me. And now I remember why. So there, there's a comedian named Harlan Williams, and he was in like Rocket Man and a bunch of movies. He actually kind of was into the whole UFO thing. He filmed himself, he filmed some kind of a low budget film somewhere around here. I'm not sure entirely where, but I think it was a little south of here. He filmed a he was filming a movie and he had the same thing happen. He filmed the UFO, two cameras go, it was above them, but it shot across the sky. You would not believe the amount of footage of UFOs that have been taken here in Tuolumne County. I think in the 1980s or maybe it was the 90s, Dan Aykroyd came out with a, a movie about UFOs, like a documentary. Yeah, unplugged. Every, unplugged, that's yeah. exactly right. Every single bit of that footage was uh, came from Tuolumne County. There, there was somebody I think in Tuolumne County where Mark Olson at that time was a dentist, Doctor Olson. Okay, and you wouldn't believe the stuff that he filmed. Um, maybe it, the film. Maybe it was him, but I remember I did a Marv sh- Taylor. That was the 1980s. No, no, this would have been in the 90s. But there, there was a time when I I was a little active in MUFON. And I remember hearing that there was somebody in Tuolumne County where they could go out on their deck and they filmed it every night. That's right. That yeah. was Mark Olson. Okay. And it's uh, it I mean, great footage. I mean, yeah. doing all kinds of weird shapes. Yeah. and yeah. I have examples of all that footage. And uh, so I had my doctor, she's retired now right. uh, here at Adventist Hill. And I, one day we were talking and I maybe was talking about like de-stressing or doing things with the family or something like sure. that. And uh, she goes, well, you know, uh, uh, once a week, uh, me and the family get together and uh, we go outside and put up our long chairs and wait for them. 
And I go, okay. what, are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> huh? Yeah. And she says they came at a scheduled time. Yeah. Uh, they could, uh, it was like, I don't know what it is, Thursday night, 10 o'clock. Okay. So <clears throat> obviously I live here in Sonora. So three, three days ago, I'm out in my backyard and I have a great unobstructed view of the sky. I can see it 360 degrees. And you know, up here, the, the light pollution is not too bad. Great view. So I'm, I'm sitting in the backyard in my comfy chair, and I'm, we're just staring at the sky because it's just beautiful, right? So I saw something, and it was like 10 times the size of a star. It's very bright, and it turns on, stays on for a minute, and then turns off. And then just vanished. And I'm like, that's weird because it's it didn't it didn't move, it didn't fade in fade out. Satellites because you're getting the reflection off the sun, the solar panels it fades and fades out. It wasn't Starlink. I guess some people saw Starlink here the other night, and they saw there Falcon been, uh, Falcon Nine like streaks across the sky, yeah. and it turns out to be Starlink. Right? Well, no. So the next day, right? My girlfriend sees the same thing, almost in the same spot. And it, it was not an airplane. It was not a satellite. It was, I don't know what it was, but it turned on. It stayed that way for a couple seconds, and then it turned off. Even Jake Jacobson said it, he, it, the, the ship came by like the next night or something. And then he was like actually hoping by that time, I guess he'd calm down that it would come by again and, and it never did. Well, up in confidence, they, they, there's, they call him the regular and he goes from the South and he kind of drifts North and they, they all know him and they all just wait for him. And he appears around 9 PM. You see this light down in the kind of Southern sky and all, and the entire evening, they just watch him fly around and then he vanishes. I mean, it's that regular here. Uh, there's a uh, photograph that I have that was taken uh, of the, uh, it's the fire lookout okay. on uh, Mount Elizabeth. Okay. And uh, there is a, like a tube-shaped object, and it's pretty clear. Uh, you know, it's not just like this fuzzy footage that the dentist takes outside his deck on Greenlee Road. This is... Uh, uh, this was a pretty clear picture. And I will tell you what, so there's, we're talking 1980s. So the highway patrol chase a low flying UFO up highway 108 and finally it just really? takes off in the Dardanelles. I was staying on Stewart Street. Here's my UFO. Okay. You can't live here for any amount of time without either having seen something or know somebody who has. And, and by the way, you know, my, my email is info at theenigmahour.com. If you've seen something, email me. So I'm living on Stewart Street, old house, 1854. Okay. Built like a big farmhouse, had sure. two stories. I'm living on the top story. And we're all just lazing around, you know. And this is... This structure is so sturdy that I try to put in curtains and could not drill a hole even with a drill <laughs> okay. uh, into this big petrified timber, okay? Right. This thing's solid. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the entire room starts shaking. Shaking. Okay, shaking. Rumbling. Really? Uh, and I'm the only one 
It's my wife and her brother and me, and I'm the only one that jumps up to go out to see what it is. And I get out on the deck because I'm on the second floor, right? Right. I look up, and you know the beginning of Star Wars, how all you see is the underbelly of the ship? Yeah. And you see all those pipes and yeah. stuff all? That's what I saw. You saw that. And uh, uh, it moved really slowly at first over my head, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden, whew, was it like a triangle or a disc or what? I, it, was that, it was too close. It was too close. To, and guess what? The next three days in the Union Democrat, front page headlines, everyone saw that. The UFO buzz Sonora in broad daylight. That's Union crazy. Democrat called every airport or anything sure. that they could think of. Uh, nobody caught to it, but everybody saw it. Well, I, I went to the, the Skywatch that they had at the Hell Attack base up the hill. And I'm out there. I've got night vision goggles. And I'm out there watching. And I, I'm watching it. It looks like a satellite, but it's zigzagging. Satellites yeah, that, those are real popular yeah. to, uh, for like campers and stuff to see. Right. And so, you Anomalous know, lights. Anomalous lights, right. And so, but you can only see it with the goggles. And so, you know, I was trying to be nice. So I went to the people that, that put on the the thing and they had a big telescope and they're letting the kids look at like Saturn and whatever. And so they said, hey, do you want to look through the goggles? Because it's a completely different experience looking through the goggles. You see shooting stars that you can't see with your eyes, right? And I said, by the way, watch out for those satellites that zigzag. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, yeah, the zigzagging satellites. He knew exactly what I was talking about. Exactly. So um, there, there's like these waves up here. Yeah. And uh, they... Uh, so there was one in the 1980s, and at that time there was a guy named Marvin Taylor, and he was connected with MUFON okay. somehow. And MUFON ended up, it was formed by, I guess actually ex-government and military officials and civilians that when Blue Book closed down, right. they started accepting the- um, The sightings. The sightings. Yeah, they stuff. have a massive database. Um, and uh, you ever notice, I don't know if you get the newsletter, but California is always number one. Always <laughs> number one. It's very active. By a, by a, by a huge amount. Uh, so there was a man named Marvin Taylor. And he was a realtor, actually. But down there, kind of by where the police department is, there's a room. I, after he moved out, it, it became a, didn't last too long, but a sex shop. Okay. But he had the largest collection of UFO mem- memorabilia in the world. Really? It was the UFO Museum. Really? And he collected files. I mean, files. And I'm talking about ships that come down to be seen by multiple people in multiple places. Right. Um, that's, there was an, they even asked him, he says, if you're 30 years tracking UFOs, what's your... Uh, you know, most baffling case. And it was one that actually came down and it was over there. He says about 40% of the sightings come from like the Table Mountain area. Really? And there's speculations on that too. I mean, sure. you know, why, um, as of why, but uh, there was these, a rancher um, that it was right next, he stopped his pickup truck and he's just watching this puppy just hovering, hovering. 
So then there's this other guy that lives further down the road, uh-huh. uh, and he looks out. He sees it there. Then there's another family that didn't even go outside to see it, but they could hear like a whirling okay. noise. Okay. So here's these people living in this area. And it's pretty rural. Right. Guy, you know, they live on the little ranches and stuff. The one guy was coming home checking from his cows or something. Right. And uh, they all saw this. The, the thing hovered there for like 20 minutes. Wow. And it's just right off, just like, just barely off the road. That's that's a long time. Uh, yeah, he said, Marv Taylor said that was the most amazing out of all his years collecting you. And it, <clears throat> his specialized in UFO sightings in 12. Yeah, he used to be able to give him 50 cents or a dollar. Uh-huh. And he had a movie. I don't know if it was made especially for him, right. but it did have Leonard Nimoy narrating this uh, UFO movie, and I'd never seen it anyplace else except for there. Uh, but he had this library. That that was probably what was it called? It's um, I have it on sixteen millimeter. It's uh. It, it goes way back. I mean, we're oh, talking seventies yeah, no, no. or yeah, something. Yeah, it's David or um, Alan Landsberg before he did In Search of. Uh, he made like three movies that were like prototypes In Search of Ancient Astronauts, um, and then he made that one. It's uh, the Outer Space Connection. It was actually shot in thirty-five millimeter. Now those ones that you were talking about of Mark Olson stuff, those were like two thousand and eight. Yeah, that sounds like about that. right. Uh, but. You know, and people know. It was I'm, impressive. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I have a coll- actually have a collection of them. And he said at that time, that was another like wave. Yeah. And at that time, if you were, and they were just kind of like doing the construction there on Greenlee Road. Uh-huh. And it says, hey, all you got to do is look up. Well, that's and, true. I always tell people, I'm like, if you actually bother to look up, you see some really weird stuff. <laughs> if you bother to look up. But then there's also reports of, uh, I've collected reports of uh, fireballs shooting around in, in the woods with the hunters. And- there's, yeah, so there's the um, Polides, David Polides. He oh, has. Yeah, the missing. Uh, yeah, missing guy. 411. So if you watch Missing 411 Hunters, they talk about there's a rest stop out past Strawberry where people like vanish. But he talks about, he actually interviewed a bunch of hunters out by Kennedy Meadows in the Dardanelles. And this, they would have Bigfoots, UFOs, and they described fireballs moving through the forest and a lightsaber that would actually move oh, through yeah, the Ron forest. Oh, yeah, Ron Moorhead. Yeah. That's the guy that did the lightsaber. Yeah. I think that looked like a lightsaber. Thing, yeah. So uh, anyway, I'm uh, camping out, and I was working for the Forest Service at that time. Okay. Know? And uh, the guy that ran, uh, it was like a campground, but it was closed down for the season. And, uh, but he knew we worked for the Forest Service and stuff, and he uh, let us, he turned on the showers for us, okay? Very kind. The hot showers for us. So we're, we're camping in a space there, but we're the only ones. Okay, so in the middle of the night, this light bathed my van. Okay? Okay. And, uh, and I'm thinking, am I dreaming? Right. Am I awake? Right. You know, and I look up and it's cold enough. You know, the park's closed. This is like, this is the end of our season. We start when there's snow on the ground, then end there's snow on the ground again. 
And uh, my windows are all like iced up, you know, like little mm -hmm. triangles of ice and stuff. But I can see, so the light's like making rainbows that way, real powerful light. That's pretty powerful. So, so the next day, the ranger guy came by and he sees me with a flashlight and I'm trying, because it actually went in the cracks of the doors of my van. I said, so it, it literally illuminated the inside of the van. Yeah, the light came from outside. Right. But I mean, it was so powerful it even was coming in through the cracks of the That's doors. That's crazy. And I, I look at this guy and he looks at me because what the hell is this guy doing with a flashlight in the daytime? Right. Uh, and I asked him, I said, is there a, did you unlock the gate yesterday? Is, was there cars that came through here last night? And he straight out said, oh, you seen it. And I said, yeah, I seen it. You know what his theory was? What? Was that uh, <coughs> earth movement okay. created a static electricity that illuminated. Yeah. Uh, well, man, he ball, he's ball lightning, with it. Ball lightning plasma, yeah. Well, I don't know. At that time, I bought his story. It sounds, it sounds like what I actually saw outside my house when I was a little kid, when you described it to me originally. I, sat, I had something very similar happen to me, but I was on the second floor. <clears throat> the one I like, though, is uh, the Cisco Grove. There was a guy during hunting season out at the Cisco Grove, which is, not, I mean, it's far from here, but not that far. And uh, he was bow hunting, and he saw a ship, and the ship landed. And these, he described them as automatons, like robots, got out, and they proceeded to chase him through the forest. And so he climbed up into a tree, and he was actually shooting them with arrows. And they, there's damage to the tree, there are footprints. I mean, he, you know, there's weird material on the ground. A lot of evidence. But yeah. you don't. Again, I get outside of Tuolumne County and uh, I do this because I just think it's a part of our, important part of our heritage is what it makes is. Tuolumne County weird. Weird, yes. I didn't you know, we need to keep it weird. That word, but, no, um, we, need, we need to keep it weird. I mean, it's there's a lot. You've got Bigfoot, you've got UFO sightings, a lot of ghosts. Everything is haunted. Yeah, I've never really gotten into the ghost thing. Oh, yeah. The hospital is crazy. We uh, talked about no, that before. Yeah, I saw. Yeah. Uh, it was like some kind of ghost hunters. Ghost adventures, yeah. Was it's nuts. I would and love to do it. I've been in that building. I, I want. Showed, uh, I got a tour from like the janitor. I want to broadcast this show from in there. I wonder if uh, that's possible. It's totally Parts possible. Of the, uh, yeah, because that was. Uh, it was some kind of maker lab or something there for a while. That part, yeah, it's, part of the old hospital. It's changed into a few uh, things. It was abandoned yeah. for a while, but it's uh, got but, stuff uh, right he's, now. The guy actually had named the ghosts. They really? had names. <laughs> well, you know, I was in Columbia um, in the middle of the night, um, and we were there, and you know, we had seen things in the windows of the fire station. We always, if we go at night, we always see things in the fire station, the windows. And, you know, it was pretty freaky. And there was somebody literally watching. I mean, they pulled the blinds and they were looking and we could see them. And, you know, you get a little freaked out, whatever. And so we walked back to the car and we had parked by over where the, they have the candles. And so we're standing on the road, the main road. And we can see two figures down far by the, by the uh, the street light, a couple blocks away from us, right? 
and we couldn't really make them out. They were shadowy. But we were commenting about how they were, the whole thing was a little bit freaky. And then they started laughing. And then the light went out and they disappeared. The street light failed. Yeah, I got one outside my house. Kind of, well, flickers, actually. Yeah. I remember when I first uh, got the dome. And we're here broadcasting here in the basement. Yeah. Of this uh, it's like a dome bunk. that looks like the White House or something. Yeah, we're big, in like the bunker. The big uh, pillars and the, the rounded dome. Yeah. And it, it was originally built as elementary school, but it's, it's been unoccupied. We're the only occupants of a 22,000 <laughs> square foot building. It's crazy. And um, and this uh, building is actually on America's Most Haunted. Supposedly uh, a uh, girl or a female figure um, appears sometimes through the curtains in the upper stories. Uh, but come in here... I used to come here sometimes like before it get light in the morning, okay? Right. And uh, there's ne the, the raven's uh, nest on the eaves of the big dome up there. Okay. So when you come in, you've disturbed the ravens and they start cawing, right? Okay. Okay, and then you're going past these like Doric pillars and stuff, right? right? And you go to open the door. At that time, there was like, most like the gymnasium door stuff have that weighted thing, which is the spring that makes yeah. sure the door shuts uh, real stiffly. And so uh, uh, there's this long hallway that curves. So when you unlock the door of the basement, you can hear the click echo okay. throughout the thing. And you open the door and it was do the squeak. And you go to turn on the light, but this building had been unoccupied for so many years that uh, all the lights had failed. So there's just one like in a distance. And since uh, we're in a dome, the, the hallway curves, it's in right. a circle. And so it looks like it goes on forever. And you just <clears> see <throat> this one light kind of flickering <laughs> down the hall. That's freaky, that's uh, some Twilight Zone stuff. Yeah, so even though I'm, I'm not saying, and my grandmother was a spiritualist. She right. talked to the dead all the time. Yeah, you told me that. Um, and uh, but still, nothing ever happened except for when I was out around my grandmother. Uh -huh. It's like I, I never really got into the ghost thing. Yeah. But uh, this place, if if you do believe, I do. This would be prime. Uh, hey, you know, Columbia's having their uh, there's this re paranormal research group coming in from Sacramento. October 11th, I think, or something like that. Oh, okay. And uh, they're going to uh, go ghost busting with all their sophisticated oh, equipment. That's awesome. And they're inviting people to come along, and you can register. Okay. There's a VIP night that actually costs money because uh, they're limited it to 10 people. Oh. And then they're going to open this? it it's up. When is this? It's in October. The VIP one's in September. Okay. And then the uh, just the general one. Right. Is in, uh, but I remember a film crew was out there one time and uh, everybody crowded around there because, hey, it's the film crew from right. the, uh, I don't know, the t a popular television show that they went around busting drugs. Right. And uh, uh, I seen the footage. I mean, I got curious and I actually looked up their stay in the hotel. Oh, sure. Those hotels and, are haunted. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, they set up cameras and stuff. 
yeah. and the water would turn on really all by itself in the sink <laughs> see i want to i really do once we get it figured out i want to broadcast a show live from the hospital all right. at night we'll see uh see how that works uh, we'll see if that works. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I might run out. Ah! They used to hold nights in Preston Castle. Oh, in right. Yeah. Uh, we went on a tour there once. That place is creepy. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Especially, it was a juvenile detention center. <laughs> right. Uh, Instantly and it, creepy. And it's built like a castle. It looks like a castle. Yeah. And the first thing when you walk in, they put the kids in the sheep dip to make sure there was no lice or anything. I mean, this was... A tough life, okay? That is tough. I mean, this is back, when was it built? Like in the 1800s? Something like that, yeah. Uh, and uh, we went to go on this tour, and it was like the sun was shining, bright sunny day. And as soon as we got there, it clouded over and started to rain. Oh, my gosh. And we went on the tour, and that building is a little... If you go into the upper stories, you can look up, see the sky through the roof, okay? <laughs> That's a bad sign. And... Um, uh, so it's all stormy and stuff. And then as soon as we packed up, we filmed it. I, I have filmed. And, and as soon as we went to leave, uh, the sun came out again. <laughs> uh, it was the most bizarre, bizarre thing. Yeah, but stuff like that happens. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, stuff like, well, it happened. Right? Yeah. But I mean, I don't know if there was anything supernatural about it. Well, it's synchronistic. At a, at yes, a that's right. The ability... Because everything is formed in the mind first. Right, it's manifestation. Then it's, uh, yeah, then it's manifested, right? Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, uh, whatever your imagination is capable of. That's true. Uh, I, I, for one, have a pretty wild imagination, <laughs> I guess. But it is. Conceive, believe. No, we need to get achieve. you. We need to make you see a ghost. We need uh, to find somewhere haunted and do you know, the show. To, have I, you come and... I used to be the stringer for the newspaper, several actually newspapers. I just got a, the wandering journalist. But I'd always get my articles printed for the Halloween edition, and I'd actually go to these various yeah. haunted places. Well, I never saw do. anything myself. But uh, some of those stories that these people, and they're respectable people, I mean. The, the hospital is supposedly haunted, so severely haunted. That if yeah, we these, went, you'd see something. Yeah, they, they spent the night in the hospital and actually had to abort the, because uh, somebody, yeah. it was out. like they were getting attacked. Yeah. Um, the guy joked around and says, hey, I'm going to lay on this surgery table. Right. And, uh, oh, you saw the, it's, it's the yeah. same show. Same show. And, oh, you know, over there Zach in Preston uh, uh, Castle, there was a British journalist and they filmed it. And the voices of that serial killer are the, the kid that killed the cook. Yeah. Uh, shoved his, her body inside the closet. Uh, 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 her, his voice. Uh, they his recorded honor. it. Yeah. Were those? Uh, the what are they yeah. yeah. There you go. All right. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, this is uh, the end of the show. <laughs> wow. We never even finished the UFOs, and we were already in the ghosts. I know. We'll have to do it again next week. Okay. You gonna show up and help me out? Uh, I'll I'll try to. Uh, I'm excited about your show. I'm excited to have that you. I uh, I wanted to uh, see uh, for a long time. See, I see it on radio. You know, it's we've done two now, and we've only scratched the surface of what you know about this area. 
So it's this is I'm a, I I enjoy having you here. It's it's very interesting. Oh yeah, so I should get one of those little tour guide hats. We're to, gonna, to your left, <laughs> you uh, we have Bigfoot to your left. <laughs> UFOs, please look up above. <laughs> All right, well, this was the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki, me, Ola Phillips, um, broadcast on KAADLP. Easier one, to say, huh? It's much easier to say. 103.5 FM out of Sonora, California. Although it reminds me of like a Brandon Iron. Yep, we're here yep. at the KAAD Ranch. <laughs> I'll just have you do it. <laughs> I think I did pretty good. I only knocked the mic over once. Hey. All right, but again, uh, you know, thanks for listening in. Uh, we are posting this as a podcast as well, so you can get it on iTunes and Stitcher and TuneIn and wherever finer podcasts are found. Just search for the Enigma Hour. Uh, you can also find me on Captain Tiki Show on Instagram or just look me up, Olaf Phillips, over on Facebook. I'm going to build a page, uh, websites in development. That's right. Tune in, turn on, and tune out. Um, no, I was thinking Actually, about no. far out. Oh, far out. <laughs> Tune in, turn on, and far out. Yeah. I used to be chill out. but No, somehow far out makes more sense. The woo factor on this show can can be pretty good. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again for listening. Uh, again, we're <clears throat> this is the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki uh, every Thursday live uh, from 10 p.m. to 12 a.m., and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>